0: tech talk with matthew dickerson matthew dickerson tech 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 talk tech 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 talk sit back and relax it's time to talk technology hello all you digital rock stars it's time to grab your axe and play along with some of the sick riffs that we have for you today here on tech talk with matthew dickerson and here to wail some magic about the the here and now and heading into the future, right into the microphone, it's our lead singer, it's Matthew Dickerson. Sing for us, Matt.
1: Just got to warm up first here. (laughs) So thank you for that intro, knowing that I cannot sing to save my life, but hopefully I'll sing some tech talk tunes for us today.
0: It's all metaphorical (laughs) singing.
1: Exactly right. So I've been to a conference this week and I love going to conferences and you learn so much and you never know the little tidbits you're going to get out of a conference. You hear the big presentations and the glossy on-the-stage presentations.
0: I can imagine there's a lot of stuff that you could probably listen through, not listen to.
1: Sometimes there's a bit of that as well, because they're they're probably addressing the lowest common denominator in the conference, and they're making sure that everyone is on board and understands the basics there. But what I do enjoy is going around to the trade stands, and talking to people there because they've got oh, all yeah. the new products they're trying to. Oh, they've got to
0: have free stuff too, surely. We? Well,
1: they do, but I, I don't like taking the free stuff because I just. <laughs> then you feel a bit betrothed or a bit dirty. It's like, oh, I should recommend that product now because I've got a freebie out of that. And then I, <laughs> I feel dirty, so I just leave them there. Yeah. And you do see people who can hardly walk out of the place because yeah. they're carrying so many <laughs> tote bags. <laughs> a friend of mine was famous for pens. So mm. not expensive, but he just wanted to have every pen that he could possibly get from oh, the various right. stands. So oh, yeah. he would come out of there like he would have ten lifetimes of writing ability with yeah, the number of yeah, pens yeah. he would collect <laughs> as he went around. But one thing I did find out, which I thought was interesting, is we've now got phones that fold and flip. So we've got this wonderful technology that manufacturers have come up with that allows a screen, which typically is a pretty flat, hard surface, to fold in half. And this isn't brand new technology. But I'm intrigued by some of the discussions at the conference by some of those manufacturers about the future of that. Now, you remember the old flip phones before we had yeah, smartphones. they were
0: cool when they came out and they, they got out of fashion very quickly. They did, but they were
1: everywhere. When yeah. when folding phones, when flip phones came out, that was it. That was the only phone you could possibly have and they fold in half and you slip it in your pocket. Yeah. And it made sense because when you open it up, there was a screen on one half and a keyboard, well, a keyboard, a number keypad, pad, yeah, yeah, a yeah, keypad. Yeah, yeah on the other half. So that made perfect sense. But you've obviously got companies like Apple and other companies that are sticking to just a flat screen. Now, is that because they haven't got the technology? Surely they could steal it. Or, sorry, Apple, I'm I'm not accusing you of stealing here, but, but surely they could borrow the technology or patent the technology from other manufacturers. There are other manufacturers who are sticking with flat screens and there are other ones who are focused very strongly on folding and flipping their phones. And I I don't know where it's headed because the the folding flipping phones look great. When you look at the crease down the middle, you can hardly see it. They're actually quite convenient. The fold, for example, you can use it with one thumb across the screen. So you can do most things with the thumb because it's a bit skinnier. But then when you want the wider phone, you fold it out and you go, wow, look at all that screen real estate. Mm. But it's not as if those sales are going ballistic. it's still The flat phones are still outselling the folding and the flipping phones. Yeah, price could be a part of Could this of it. be a
0: whole VHS versus beta thing where people just don't catch on, they just like what they like? Yeah, it could I mean, be. The, yeah, anyway, yeah. sorry, yeah. Well,
1: and that's a possibility. I don't quite understand it because the amount of R&D that certain companies have spent on getting a screen that folds. That's not an easy thing. You can imagine sitting around mm. the board going, well, why don't we have a flip phone like we used to have? Mm. And the engineers in the corner start quivering and shaking and breaking <laughs> out in a <laughs> cold sweat. <laughs> How do I do that? But have a leg, old mag now. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. So I am intrigued by that. I can't give you an answer as to where it's going. People who have got their phones that fold or flip love them. People who have got their flat phones still love them. The real test, I think, would be a company like Apple that's got a large market share if they brought out a folding or a flipping phone, which I haven't seen any plans in this year, for example, for them to bring one out. But if they brought one out, then is it about the operating system or is it about the actual mm. form factor of the phone? So it's it's intriguing, but I still love the technology in those phones.
0: It will be interesting to go fast forward two years and look back on um yeah this all this guesswork that we've had.
1: That's right and we're yeah. meant to be doing that, aren't we fast forwarding several years in the future <laughs> and I can't I can't give you a prediction on this one.
0: Uh well Without a smidgen of irony, uh, we're going to kick off our episode today by marking the end of an era. Today we pay an homage to an old friend with one foot in the grave. It's time to farewell the 3G network, folks. Remember 3G? It was there when you sent your first photos through thin air. It was there when I got married. It was there when each of my sons were born. It saw some good times and it saw some bad times. And it did its job without complaint. And then 4G came along and things got a bit quieter for it. But it kept going. And then 5G came along. But like an old Datsun 240Z, it just kept going. But folks, it's time. I guess it's just the circle of life. Thanks for the memories, 3G. Matt, what have we got to say about that?
1: Well, it is one of those things that I don't think we probably realise just how much of a difference 3G made to our daily lives now. So 3G was introduced back in Australia in April 2003, and it was released with a huge promise of incredible data speeds and being able to send ridiculously sized files and photos, as you say, over the air. And it probably delivered on a lot of that hype. And it would be fair to say that the smartphones that we enjoy today probably only were possible once we had data speeds that 3G delivered for us.
0: Yeah, so 3G really opened the door and paved the way. And uh, it was probably marks the point where things changed the most, I guess.
1: I think you're spot on. I think that's exactly right. And here we are. So the timeline is that the three carriers in Australia, Vodafone in December this year, December 2023, will switch off 3G. Telstra at the end of June 2024 will switch off 3G and Optus in September 2024 will switch off their 3G network. So essentially, that'll be it, dead and gone. Now, there are some concerns from some people because there are times when you're travelling on regional roads and you're driving along and your phone drops out of 5G then drops out of 4G and then sometimes you see 3G come up and you know that's come up because you try and send that beautiful photo you took on Instagram and it's just not going or it's taking forever and you're, oh what a joke this 3G (laughs) network is but of course the photos are much larger than they were when 3G was first introduced so that's interesting, now Why are they doing that? Why not just leave it ticking away there? You might need it for some regional coverage in some areas. Surely that's okay. Well, there's a couple of reasons. One that's an economic reason, but one is a crucial reason. It's probably not economical for a carrier. To maintain a 3G network, mm. it's like maintaining a telegraph system where you still got people who come in once every six months as a novelty to send a telegram. Well, why would we maintain a network it's for that? It's
0: like investing in that Datsun 250Z <laughs> as your family car. That's right, and keep and, repairing okay. <laughs> it. That's right, and
1: having the tools for it and uh, all the rest of it. Yeah. So, carriers aren't going to spend a lot of money, or well, they don't want to spend a lot of money, put it that way, on maintaining the network. And given the fact that it's now 20 years old, around about that. 20 to maybe 25 years seems to be the timeline of most of the g of networks 2g 3g 4g etc that seems to be about the sort of timeline but there is a much more important reason of course and we've got spectrum reallocation so there's only so much spectrum so many frequencies we can use to transmit our radio signals and the 3g network primarily uses 850 megahertz and 2100 megahertz If you have those two frequencies tied up with 3G, Mm. then you can't have them used for 4G or 5G.
0: Yeah, right.
1: The usage of frequencies by 5G in particular is much more efficient than the usage by 3G. They have smaller time slices or time slices, smaller frequency chunks that are used by the 5G network. So essentially, you can actually fit more data, more users on a 5G version of the same frequency. So that's important, obviously. One of the things that's really interesting, though, of course, and I do remember back to when they were switching off the analogue network, and it was initially going to be December 1999, they are going to switch off the analogue network, the AMPS network, and they ended up going out to September 2000, and that was because they didn't have the same coverage with the new digital networks that were around at the time, so they had to extend that just a little bit, and in fact, CDMA was introduced as a bit of a stopgap measure. It was probably the shortest of just about any of the technologies that I can remember. CDMA was introduced in September 1999 for regional users that needed the coverage of analog with some of the features of digital. So it wasn't quite as good mm. as digital, but it had some of that extra coverage. But it only lasted from September 99 to July 2012. But more importantly, when analog was turned off in September 2000, then it could fill that gap there. The really interesting part is that the three carriers have had or have made different promises about their coverage under four G and five G once the three G network is switched off. Right. Will the government step in and make them extend that? Well, I think there's been enough warnings around already that you've got to get these other networks right before you go and switch off the three G network. Mm. So I think three G networks will switch off, and then that brings me to another point. And this is I apologise. This being such a long story, this no, one no, here, but it no, is no, no, a big okay. issue. Very interesting. There are some organisations out there and different devices out there that are using 3G, you may not even be aware of it. So for example, alarm systems, when you've got your arming and disarming of an alarm system, it sends a tiny little minuscule bit of data, so often those are 3G. When the alarm signal goes, so someone breaks into your house or your business and it sends an alarm signal, back in the old days it would use a telephone dialer, but of course people just turn up outside the house and cut the phone lines and then broke in, so they changed that over to be a mobile phone dialer, but... 3G often those use, because again it doesn't need to send like that. So is
0: there any uh, capacity to maybe turn it off for a couple of months and then turn it back on again just to see <laughs> <laughs> see what's not working. See what's not working, see if anyone had any major problems or, or?
1: Well, they're probably uh, no, I think is is the simple answer to that. I don't think they'll do that. But I'm a bit more worried about so there's alarms, but I'm a bit more worried about some medical equipment, emergency alert systems, some medical alerts that people put around their neck have got a base station so around their home, mm-hmm. they press the button and it, it rings out from there, but that was a bit limiting for some people, so they put in 3G versions of those. And the reason they'd use 3G for those is because the 3G hardware is cheap. It's very old, yeah. so it's much cheaper. And again, not much data is sent. You press the button and it says, Matthew Dickerson's fallen over and he's at this location. So you're not sending a lot of data mm-hmm. there. You're not seeing photos of Matthew Dickerson falling over. So you've got those type of things. You've also got older FPOS terminals, flood monitoring systems, traffic light controls, agricultural management tools. This is a really important one. Pet trackers, so right. you might lose where your pet is when 3G gets switched off. Vehicle trackers, in fact, the first Tesla that I bought, the Tesla Model S, when I bought that, it had 3G in it. And I thought that was interesting that a very modern car still only had 3G, but again, it wasn't using a lot of data for that. Now, there is a, an upgrade module, so if you I don't have that car anymore, but if you had one of those cars, you could upgrade the module to 4G, which makes sense. But that's a bigger concern for me. The reception range, hopefully the carriers get it right. Right but all of these other devices so i suppose the the message here is go and check anything you've got it connects to the outside world and you may not even be aware of how it does. <laughs> no,
0: go and check every, even the stuff you're not aware of.
1: Yeah, that's right. The stuff you don't know about, check that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so on the 1st of October this year, if um, the wheels start falling off everything and everyone's going crazy and it just seems like we've gone into the purge, um, <laughs> then uh, it could be because 3G's been flicked off.
1: And here's the other challenging part. You might have an FPOS terminal with your bank. You don't know who the carrier is. Uh-huh. You could probably take off the back and have a look at the SIM card, but maybe someone got the SIM card built in as part of the mm. actual device itself. Mm. So you don't know. So if it starts stops working in December this year, sorry, December this year is Vodafone. So if it stops working in December this year or June next year or September next year, then that might be the carrier depending on which carrier your particular company is using. And that that's the same with all of those, whether it be your car or your alarm system, whoever you don't, you're not the one normally that goes out and does that connection. You don't mm. go into a phone store and connect a SIM card and then come home and put it in your alarm system. It's all part of the device that was bought at some stage. So it's going yeah, to be right. interesting. Yeah. Okay,
0: so the message is um, start stashing canned food and toilet paper. <laughs>
1: That's <laughs> right. And make sure you've got some physical locks on your house rather than yeah, relying right, on your alarm okay. system. <laughs>
0: Netflix is officially for everybody, folks. I think that's uh, how they want it to be known, at least. I guess for the longest time, I'd assumed that TV was a wasted effort for people with visual impairment. So little I know. For a while now, some TV has had audio description options so that the visually impaired could indulge in some idiot box, even if only for a limited range of shows. Always seeking the edge, though, Netflix is getting on board and working hard to add audio descriptions to a broad range of its collection. This is a mammoth task, isn't it, Matt?
1: Mammoth task, and I'm not sure they're there yet, and that's why there's been a petition started from a 20-year-old student from Brisbane, and good on her for going out and taking on, oh, not taking on Netflix, encouraging Netflix to do this. Mm. Now, we have talked about subtitles before and the fact that my kids who can all hear mm. actually turn on subtitles that come yeah, home. My
0: students, when we watch a YouTube clip. Yep. Want subtitles, the subtitles yeah. even when they're wrong. <laughs> that's that's the thing, because
1: <laughs> some of them are auto-generated, so sometimes they are yeah. wrong. Exactly right. So one thing we don't think about though is the reverse of that. You need the audio description, so you want to be able to see or hear. Sorry, what's happening? So if you're blind, you can't see what's happening. You can listen to the dialect, the the, the dialogue. Sorry, not the dialect, the dialogue, and so you're hearing that, but you don't know that James has left the room. When I'm talking about Jane, yeah. you don't know the actions that are occurring. Now, modern movies and modern TV shows have audio descriptions. You can turn on audio descriptions, which makes sense. So you're sitting there on the couch, you're a bit distracted, if you can see, and you're hearing that so and so's left the room, and now there's a different scene, and they've now cut to a scene of a mountain, and whatever it might be, that all makes sense. But older shows, and here's the challenge mm. you've got some whole classics, and in this particular case, this Student said that she loves Gilmore Girls and Friends, so two old classic <laughs> TV
0: shows. In the late 90s and early 2000s, yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Classics. And why wouldn't you want to sit around and watch, or in her case, listen to those? But again, I can just think of Friends, and you can just imagine the different scenes when you're in the Central Perk Cafe or mm-hmm. up in the apartment or changing to someone's workplace. You need to know the context of where you are. Oh,
0: and particularly, it'd be frustrating because a lot of that, they've like got canned laughter and whatnot. And some of the jokes are visual. So things mm. go silent and then the audience laughs and you're left thinking, well, something's happened there.
1: I'd be intrigued to actually listen to some of the audio descriptions to see how it describes exactly yeah. what's occurring on screen. And for some of those American sitcoms, they're a bit obvious in some yeah. of their humour. So that wink, would be, wink. you know, Joey comes in and has a look on his face like this and that's why there's laughter there. And so yeah. it would be very obvious, you think, describing some of that humour in there. But again... I'm lucky I can see. There are people out there who can't see. And we sometimes forget about people less fortunate than ourselves. But there's a technology solution, but it's just not been applied to older shows, older movies, that type of thing. But what a job for Netflix or anyone to do. And I suppose the question is is it really Netflix's job to do it? Or they obviously license friends off whoever made friends, off the producers of friends. So they're paying a fee to do that. So that would make more sense to actually approach them oh, and say, right. "Hey, you need this for not just Netflix because there's other ways you can watch Friends as well."
0: Yeah, yeah, hmm. very interesting. Something I'd never thought about. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, no, I'd never thought about it either. But obviously, there are people out there who this is a big thing. Will
0: I open a few? Pardon the pun. We've talked a bit on this podcast about early warning systems for health, personal protection, and natural disasters. The story falls, this story at least, falls into the last category as Australia hurdles headlong into another El Nino after a year of lush La Nina growth, the dry off and subsequent bushfire season looms ominously. As I said, we've discussed bushfire early detection mechanisms before. They're all about enabling a quick response, but a quick response will depend on a selection of different types of these detection mechanisms. Anything set on the ground needs to be cheap, easily powered, and easily replaced. Matt, what's the latest tech on this front?
1: I actually think the very first episode we did of this podcast talked about satellite detection of bushfires. So we're going back a few years now, and that was obviously a big thing and breaking news then. Hmm. We've also talked recently about cameras being set up in bushfire-prone areas. That was only
0: a couple of months ago.
1: Yeah, so this latest one is being used already over in Europe and North America, And it's actually detecting gas in the air, gas changes in the air. Yeah, okay. Now, the problem is you need a number of these devices. They're low cost, they're solar powered. One thing I really liked about it was when I thought about solar powered, I thought, well, that means there's a battery in there do you want to go and put a bunch of batteries in a (laughs) bushfire-prone area? Mm, Doesn't that sound like it won't go so well? But they actually use capacitors to store some energy in there, which capacitors can be used to store energy, of course. They use those to avoid the high fire, the high temperature burning of a lithium-ion battery, for example. So, yeah, I thought that was quite clever. So what they do is they put a number of these around. They've got the ability to communicate to the outside world. I'm assuming not with 3G. (laughs) So, So they've thought about that in advance, I'm sure. And then they're solar powered, so they've got power in them, and they just monitor the gas in the air. Now, it doesn't take a lot of gas change for these sensors to say, there's a gas change here, send an alert off to the first responders. And again, as we've talked about before, if you can get there when it's a little smouldering nothingness, Mm. you can put it out and say, good, let's go home and have a cup of tea. It's when it goes from that nothingness hours later to be a raging bushfire or wildfire, I think they call them in America, that's when it's a bit of a problem. Now the the biggest issue I see with these is that each sensor only covers about the size of a football field. So if you want to go into an area that's prone to have bushfires, you're going to put a lot of these in. Now they're yeah. low cost, which is good. I imagine that you'd overlap them somewhat so that you wouldn't just go just bushfire sorry just football size field and that was it. You'd overlap them in case something went wrong or maybe one's not getting enough sun or whatever it might be. But I think we're getting better and better, and we're going to have to, because as you said, there's been some incredible undergrowth over the last year or two, and now you combine that with a nice hot summer, our warmest winter ever. We've just come out off on record, so we're going into this Mm. wonderful warm season where all this undergrowth is going to be nice and dry, and it's going to be, hopefully not, hopefully we've got enough technology to help us, but there's the potential for it to be a huge bushfire season. So doing things like this is great. They're not here yet. That is one of the minor problems. But because they're being used in Europe and in North America already, they're, they're ready to go. They're ready to scale up It's just a matter of how many of these they can manufacture. And then they can communicate back to bushfire responders. So it sounds
0: pretty cool. Goodness me, yeah, yeah. And uh, as we say, um, you know, if we've got um, several ways of checking, then you've got the, your triple and double checks and whatnot. And so, yeah, hopefully save properties, save lives.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And let's face it, if we use some of this technology and, as you said, some other technologies and you get a couple of false alarms, well, it means that a couple of guys drove out in a truck to an area and went, oh, nothing here, and turn around and go back home. Mm. I can live with that and I can mm. live with society Paying for that, covering the cost of the rural, rural bushfire service or the rural fire service, etc. For sure. But again, you want you prefer that than the other way around. Where I'm oh, not sure about that one. We'll just leave it go. Uh, yeah. See Whoops. what happens.
0: Yeah. yeah. And now for another early warning device to save lives, it's a heart scanning device to catch all manner of afflictions. It's been FDA approved in the states, so it should be on the shelves very soon, Matt. It is actually going to be on the
1: shelves in America very soon. And I actually was impressed with how cheap, and I say cheap in inverted commas, it's not too bad. It's about $540 Aussie, about $400 in the US. So that sounds expensive for a set of scales, but Mm. this isn't your average set of scales. And I'm sure we talked about this when it was first shown off at CES 2022. So we probably talked about it at the beginning of last year as a device I was showing off, but now it's there, it's being sold now as we speak. It's a set of scales with a handle. So maybe that's for people that are getting a bit old and frail and need some way of steadying themselves, but the handle is part of the sensors. So you've got sensors on the scale themselves, so 14 electrodes on the scales, and then you've got four electrodes on the handle. And the idea here is when you stand on it, it checks not just your weight but it checks some parts of your bodily function, including your heart rate and any sort of issues you might have with your heart rate. So this is something going to the next level. It can test nerve activity. It can test vascular age. It can test signs of neuropathy. So you've got a whole range of things. And being FDA approved doesn't say that it's all perfect, but at least it's a step along the way. Mm. So FDA has said, well, we've checked it. And it doesn't mean that everything's working perfectly, but it's not dangerous. So mm. the little tiny bit of electricity that it puts through your body is not going to electrocute you, is not going to do any damage to you. Does it give you perfect results? Mm, they didn't say that. They just said that, yes, this is safe to use. That's kind of the first step. And then uh, I assume out there in the real world, Yeah, once it gets it, out
0: in the marketplace, it'll have people scrutinizing it a bit more closely and um, and uh, perhaps even people developing it even further.
1: Well, developing the concept. So I I think it's fantastic, but we are getting better with our health devices. We often talk about that. Early detection, checking out our body, making sure things are going well. Uh, Again, it's just, it's fantastic where we're going. Hopefully that means that people get on this scale, look at their body and say, you know what, maybe I shouldn't be eating junk food three meals a day and maybe I should do some exercise. I feel
0: like that's a very pointed comment. uh, Not at all, not at all. (laughs) Here's another one to help us keep ourselves natural disaster free. Whenever we go to the beach, my wife runs us through a quick tsunami plan. It's tongue in cheek, of course, but behind every joke. Here's another example of AI put to use. This time, our friend AI uh, takes atmospheric clues to spot early signs of monster waves. Which then it hopefully sends to an alert, early alert to anyone closer than sea level, uh, closer to sea level than the fifth floor. If I could just read my lines clearly, Matt. This has the potential to save thousands of lives, and it uses some pretty nifty tech.
1: It does, and there's a couple of things that I find interesting here. The first one is the pronunciation of b u o y. I say buoy,
0: yeah, but but Americans say buoy, buoy. I know, yeah. and
1: sometimes I've been watching a TV show and I hear someone say buoy, and I go. What was that word? And then They're I turned the subtitles the on, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and if it says <laughs> B-U-O-Y, well, that's a buoy, not a buoy. But there's a few things. The first thing is that there are buoy or buoy-based systems that you can install out in the ocean to detect a tsunami because obviously there's a big wave that's travelling along out in the ocean before it gets to a tsunami on the shore. So you can put those in, but you can imagine... You're putting them out in the ocean along every shoreline that you might want to think is possibly going to have a tsunami one day. Yeah. And then monitoring those, checking them because you want to make sure they're working because obviously you don't want to have the tsunami one day and go, oh, didn't you check the batteries in that? What no. were you doing? That was your <laughs> job. No, that was your job. So that's the first thing. Boys have been used and still are used at the moment, but it's a complicated system. The other thing that I find really fascinating about this story is that we tend to think, well, I tend to think in a simplistic way that. Radio signals typically travel at 3 by 10 to the 8 metres per second, same as the speed of light. Now, that's kind of true-ish, but depending on what those radio signals are travelling through, it might change that ever so slightly. Yeah, so
0: you're going to get some sort of a refraction, I would guess.
1: Well, you've got different things that might be travelling through. So, for example, NASA had done some research on this and they found that the charged particle density in the Earth's ionosphere which is 300, 350 kilometres above the Earth, for example, Mm -hmm. that affected the speed of transmission between ground-based devices and satellites. Now, you can imagine, it's not going to be much. It's not as if they go, wow, that 3 by 10 to the 8, now that's going at 50 kilometres an hour. It's going to be minuscule changes.
0: Yeah, but I'm guessing that those minuscule changes are still significant.
1: Enough. They're significant enough for tsunami detection. And so you go, what, how could that possibly be true And so essentially, when you've got tsunami triggered shock waves, they affect the density of some of that ionosphere. So that actually changes the speed of satellite radio signals. (laughs) You're going along minding your own business, just being, I don't know, a GPS satellite or something, and you go, hold on a sec, that signal got a little bit slower to me than it should have done. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so that must be a tsunami. Now, they're actually setting up this at the moment and there's an algorithm that NASA have developed to basically look at those changes in charged particle density and then link that to a tsunami. It's not perfect yet. They've used AI to actually take some of this data and you can imagine you've probably got some data you could use that isn't necessarily turning into a tsunami you can have things that happen out in the ocean that don't always end up in a tsunami mm. but they think they've got it at the moment to about 90% oh I'd like it a bit higher than that please Yeah, but 90% is not too bad which is better than 0% again you and your wife sitting on the beach sunning yourselves and next thing you know you go man I wish I was a big wave surfer because look at that thing coming in <laughs> <laughs> so it's that's quite that's
0: when you start heading for the fifth floor that's, of the ho- nearest hotel
1: that's it I hope the foundations are solid so that's where it sounds fascinating. But just imagine, I just love human ingenuity, sitting around yeah. going, "Damn, we've got this problem because sometimes our signals aren't getting there and that might be affecting something else. And someone said, why aren't they getting there? You have a discussion. Next thing you know, someone's coming up with an early warning system for tsunamis based on some of the problem I'm sure yeah. they had with these charged particles in the ionosphere. Like, that's just fascinating. You
0: just, yeah, you just need the right person thinking about that, the, that sort of a problem. Yeah, yeah?
1: And, and I'm sure someone else initially said and this is not to degrade the people who have been working on this, but said, no, nah, you just made a mistake. I'm sure that's, mm. that's wrong there because it's going to get to us at the same speed. Everything should be fine. Even detecting it, even noticing it in the first place. I just, I love that yeah. ingenuity. That's and, and that's
0: right. And science and technology has been driven by these sorts of things just by having the right person kick over the right rock and, uh, and paying attention to what they've just kicked over.
1: Ask the question. And this is the, the whole thing. I mean, I'm sure you do it with your students in science. When you say, do the results, and one of the smart students might say, oh, what are the results meant to be, Mr. Eddy? And I'm sure you would say, well, the results are what you find. So let's go out and yeah, do that. that's right. And if you remember the Mpemba effect.
0: Oh, I was just going to bring up the oh, Mpemba there you go. effect. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, you go. Yeah, well, so, yeah, Joseph Mpemba, he was a year nine student, sort of a 14, 15-year-old boy in Uganda in 1975. And uh, there was some issue with his science assignment and um, so he was trying to hurry things up and he put some hot water in the freezer um, alongside some cool water and he noticed that the hot water froze before the cool water. Uh, It doesn't happen in all circumstances. Uh, There's got to be an ideal set of conditions there, but he's got an effect named after him.
1: And the way I heard the story was that there was someone visiting the school and they were asking questions Yeah learned scientist, and he put his hand up and he said, why does water freeze quicker when it's been boiled? And everyone went, well, you're crazy. Of course it doesn't do that. And he said, yes, it does, and on from there. So again, yeah. he was inquisitive enough right. and also confident enough to ask the question, but he didn't realise that it wasn't meant to be that way. He was asking the question, yeah. and I think that sometimes the solution is if you can ask the right question, get that answered, suddenly you've got a solution.
0: That's right. Well, it got a lot of smart minds uh, thinking about that issue. Yeah, yeah that's right. I can't believe that in 2023 we're still entertaining the idea that there might be a Loch Ness monster out there. I figured that the goodies episode of the early 70s might have been the death knell for this sort of folly, but apparently more than 50 years later, there are still people who are committed to finding this thing. This next story is evidence that people will believe in anything. A high-tech mission has been launched and will hopefully end the myth of the Loch Ness monster once and for all. Not. What's all the hubbub about, Matt? And can we turn this tech on Bigfoot as well while we're at it?
1: Well, I was thinking of both Sasquatch or Bigfoot and the Loch Ness monster.
0: And I was trying to think. There's got to be others out there too that we've got to go on find. Surely, surely. Yeah, yeah, but and stuff.
1: I, I was always concerned that with all the wonderful camera equipment we've got, and everyone's carrying a wonderful camera in their pocket with their smartphone now, they just never seem to have a good quality camera. Whenever Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster Monster happen to be popping up, why don't they carry good quality cameras, people?
0: You're going out looking for these things. Take a good quality camera. Look, for mine, it's also about understanding population dynamics and how long can a single individual live... Um and um, <laughs> how many how many individuals do you need to keep a population alive? Anyway, let's keep going.
1: So you're saying there's got to be more than one there's Sasquatch? There
0: have to be lots and lots of Sasquatches out there, and if there's lots and lots, then maybe we might have spotted more of them. Maybe. Uh, same as uh, the Loch Ness Monster. Yeah. But anyway, the plesiosaur.
1: So I, I love the fact that people have said, you know what, let's throw some science at this myth. And the best we've got at this stage was the famous 1934 surgeon's photo, which later was proven to be a hoax. Yes. (laughs) In fact, he said that was a hoax. Gotcha. (laughs) Uh, So they're going out and they're doing thermal imaging with drones over the, the, the lock. So they're going out there and doing that. They're doing underwater hydrophones to pick up potential, get ready for it, Nessie-like calls. Mm. Given the fact we don't have a lot of information about, about what? <laughs> the Loch Ness Monster, I'm not sure what a Nessie-like call is. Yeah. Maybe they got some voice actors in and said, what mm-hmm. do you think Nessie would sound <laughs> like? And now we're going to listen for those things. But I just love the fact that someone said, you know what, this would be a good fun thing to do. And that'll show them. That's that'll right. prove that the Loch Ness Monster, at least with the Loch Ness Monster, is limited to one body of water. The, it's 57 square kilometres is yeah. the body of water. So it's not the world, whereas Sasquatch could be anywhere. could be sitting outside this house right now. Yeah, it could right. be anywhere. Maybe a few more trees around might be needed for Sasquatch to hide in. I'm not sure. <laughs> but it seems to be uh, popping up. And also, so to do it with Sasquatch would be very difficult, at least with the Loch Ness Monster. Let's tick that one off first. And surely then, once you've got science that shows definitively not there, and actually, that's an interesting that's one.
0: That's a problem because yeah, you not can, finding it is not proof that it doesn't exist. That's
1: right. There's a great quote in the movie about the females that helped in World War Two and yeah. some of the the mathematics they were doing. Oh no, no, sorry, in, in landing on the moon. And there's a great quote in that: the, the absence of evidence, evidence. is not yeah. the evidence of absence. So, saying as much information as you like to say the locked Ness is not there does not prove it's not there. It just proves you haven't found it yet.
0: However, a basic understanding of population dynamics might anyway it let's might. just keep Don't pushing be such on there do a spoil sport
1: James <laughs> logic and science you're putting to it that's no fun at all yeah. so by the time people listen to this episode the testing should have been completed so you should be able to go and google it and see what they found now I'm going to go out on a limb here I'm with you I'm going to say, get ready for it, they didn't find <laughs> any evidence of Loch Ness. But I don't know for sure yet because we haven't got the results back yet.
0: Yeah, look, I'm going to go out on a limb. I reckon it exists. I'm going to back on all uh, everything I've said so far and, oh, uh, yeah, just put all my house and everything on it. <laughs> the Loch Ness monsters out there, there's only one of them and it's been around for how many hundred years? Oh, uh, a fair <laughs> while. Actually, when
1: was the first sighting? It would have look,
0: been. A, the, a blue whale or a sperm whale lives for about
1: 80 years, 80 or 90 years. Yep. Well, given back. Yep. the 1934 photo was yep. 90 years ago or 89 yeah. years ago, he'd have to be fairly old. Oh, well, he or she, Loch Ness Monster, would be sexist mm. here, would have to be fairly old. And who were the mum and dad? Oh, look, it gets too complicated. So keep an eye for that. Go and Google yeah. it now and see what you find.
0: <laughs> and it is Scam Alert time again, folks. The ATO has sent out a warning for people looking forward to a decent tax return. Matt, what are their chances um, of picking up scams?
1: Cost of pressure living is a great thing for people to get out there and scam you about. Because if you got a text message from the ATO, of course, that said you were going to get a much larger tax return than you thought, you could hardly wait to <laughs> get that tax return.
0: It could be, yeah, forgiven for getting excited about it.
1: Exactly right. And the ATO has said that the tax returns this year are probably going to be a bit lower for a whole range of reasons. So people are expecting lower tax returns. But when you get that text message to say, you've got a couple of thousand dollars in your tax return, Mm. well, give it to me, baby. Fantastic. Of course, accompanying that text would be the details of your bank account details that were required and your date of birth, because they don't want to send the money to the wrong person. And, of course, you're handing over your identity Mm. to someone else. And that's a, a very scary thing. We have talked about that before. It's very difficult to get your identity back. Someone steals money that's bad and annoying and frustrating, and you might get your money back or you might not. But when someone steals your identity... That's a whole bunch of trouble. You then next,
0: have to prove that you don't have all these loans.
1: Correct, and, yep. Uh, and your your track record then your debt history can be impacted. So the next time you go for a legitimate loan for a car, a house, for a bit of furniture from some furniture store, they say, go. sorry, sir, we see that you defaulted on several million dollars worth of home loans or whatever it might be. Mm. So that's all a bit of a problem. But the message really from the ATO here is very simple. Never, ever, ever, not maybe, not occasionally, never, ever – will they send you a message with a link? They might send you a message. Mm. They might inform you of something, but they'll say, go and have a look on the ATO website or contact your tax agent. They'll they'll direct you mm. to look at it. So again, with so many different little tricks that scammers are using, you've just got to be so conscious of not clicking on a link. I mean, it seems simple, doesn't it? But it's, it's so convenient. That's right. Something comes in and you want to click on a link and they're good. So you might get a parcel that's coming and it says click on this link just to see where your parcel's up to. Oh, that's pretty convenient. That's great. I'll do that. But again, if that link has the details. Everyone loves a parcel
0: too, don't they? (laughs) They do love a parcel. even (laughs) if they're not expecting a parcel, get a message that, oh, you've got a
1: parcel coming. It's like, what? Yeah. It was my birthday (laughs) two months ago. Someone must have sent me a parcel. I got stuck in the post. So it is one of those things that is frustrating and annoying. And we do do a few warnings, a few public service announcements about it. But this is, it's almost, the scammers have got, their timeline, their calendar for the year. Oh, look at this. It's now August, September. People are expecting tax returns. Action. Tax return scam time. So the same as it'll be Christmas Christmas parcel scam time or it'll be some other time of the year they've got their scams ready for it. So just be alert. Life
0: was easier when the scammers didn't do so much homework.
1: (laughs) They're getting very sophisticated, aren't they?
0: We're all about sustainability here at Tech Talk, and if there's one thing to get the juices flowing, it's when we come across a story where one man's trash is another man's treasure. The coffee industry has taken off in the last 30 years in Australia, and we have not only some of the best baristas in the world, but we also consume more coffee than countries many times larger than us. That makes for a whole lot of used coffee grounds. Of course, these can be composted, but it also just so happens that the building industry in this country is crying out for innovation. So it's time we married two unlikely partners. A group of coffee-loving engineers from RMIT have seen the light. Matt, apparently Aussie concrete loves coffee as well.
1: Apparently. Now, I just love this idea where you can have a building built out of concrete, and we'll describe it in a moment, but that aroma of coffee, is that built into? That's right. That's right. (laughs) The whole time in your walls of, of concrete that your building's built out of, you've just got this lovely aroma. It is fascinating. You know, I don't remember when it happened that everyone that walks down the street has to have their hand out in front of them carrying a coffee cup. Yeah. I almost expect to see people running in a fun run carrying their coffee cup <laughs> along because they, they wouldn't know what to do with their hand otherwise. So it has really taken off. And I, again, I don't remember when it happened. You, you said 30 years, but I don't know when suddenly it went from no one had coffee or you had your 43 beans of Nescafe and suddenly everyone had to have a cappuccino. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it was yeah. a, a bit different. But globally, we consume 18, or oh, sorry, no, we generate 18 million tonnes of used coffee grounds. Wow. That's a lot. Now, unfortunately, a lot of that ends up in landfill. You can compost it, as you said, but most people don't. They end up in landfill, and of course, that then contributes to methane. We talked about methane recently, about mm-hmm. methane being much worse as a car, or greenhouse uh, green gas rather gas. Than, yep. than CO2, and, and the figures vary on that. I might have said something like 94 times worse last time we spoke about that, and it depends on the time frame. So I've heard figures anywhere from 20 times worse to 90 times worse, but it actually releases it quicker, releases greenhouse gases quicker from methane. So it has a much greater effect in the short term over the long term. It's still worse than CO2, but it tails off as such. So you might hear figures from, say anywhere from 20 times to 90 times, but bottom line is it's worse than CO2. Mm. What can we do with it? Well, I'm again intrigued by why people were doing this This is this is down the rmit university in melbourne so a lot of coffee is drunk in melbourne obviously they thought there'd be a a market for this they took the coffee grounds they heated them randomly probably not randomly they probably did some experiments to 350 degrees celsius for two hours in an oxygen-free environment and then the obvious thing to do with that biochar was to mix it with concrete (laughs) go figure (laughs) I don't know. Again, I'd just love to see the <laughs> progress, these steps that someone went through. Yeah,
0: who had the idea of doing this? Yeah, it's like the first person who um, ever prepared olives. Like, if you've ever <laughs> if you've ever had a raw olive fresh from the tree, there's no taste like it, and you're not getting rid of that taste out of your mouth <laughs> for Are a long time. Are you not going back for a second and one? Thought. Oh, well, perhaps if we do, and and like the processing of an olive is a really really hard thing. How you get from coffee grounds to let's put these in concrete. That's right. And and not just let's put them in concrete.
1: Let's put them to a certain temperature, create an environment, go through all that process to go, hey,
0: look at this. I reckon it happened at a party and (laughs) there was some stuff going around. Quite possibly. (laughs) An engineer's party. Are you making
1: comments about uh, university students? Not at all. So they replaced 15% of the sand in the concrete and they found they had concrete that was stronger, increased by 29%. So mm. you're getting a double bonus here. You're getting coffee grounds that might have gone in a landfill and you're putting them in concrete. So you're reducing the amount of methane you're creating. And then you're getting concrete that's stronger, which then gives you a double bonus because theoretically you could use less concrete. Yeah, was, yeah. Oh, And yeah. of course, we know that concrete's bad for the environment. 8% of global carbon dioxide emissions come from concrete production. Mm. So reduce the amount of concrete because it's stronger And get rid of something that produces methane. Wow! Well, how long does
0: it take to pour and cure some concrete? Um, And if you can cut that time as well, you can throw up your buildings a bit faster, perhaps as well. Another bonus, triple bonus. This is the gift that keeps on giving.
1: It is all from some people smoking some drugs at a university (laughs) party. Sounds fantastic, (laughs) but it is it is quite fascinating. They're still doing their testing at the moment. It's still at University stage, not out in production stage, not out in the real world yet.
0: But what a clever idea!
1: What a clever idea, and I think we'll see much more of this.
0: I just took the family overseas a couple of months ago as part of an extended family get together. When we were hatching the idea at Christmas time, though, everything was looking like a very neat and fairly cheap plan. But once we'd started to commit to buying plane tickets and accommodation, the cost blew out something fierce and things got financially out of hand pretty quickly. Our biggest expense was in the airfares. Matt, Google has got a big idea and if they'd had this nine months ago, they might have saved me a mozza. What's Google gone and done? Everyone knows
1: that you're selling an airline ticket and you sell, or you don't, the airline sells it for a whole range of different prices, mm. but you don't know the algorithm. And the airlines yeah. aren't going to tell you. And there's so many variables in there. There's some airlines, and a friend of mine Cotton on to one airline that if there are tickets left, so if they're trying to get somewhere and it's not urgent they get on that particular flight, 24 hours beforehand, suddenly the price drops. Because you don't want to fly a plane with empty seats, yeah, so yeah, suddenly the price drops. Yeah. But then there's other airlines that if you buy the ticket, say 10 or 11 months in advance, it's cheap because they want to get some people on those planes to make sure that it's viable actually to fly them in the first place. Mm. So there's so many variables well, in When there. we did our
0: research at Christmas time, we were looking at flights for less than $1,000. When we came to buying those uh, tickets, they were at $1,800. Yeah, there,
1: there, there you go. And, and again, it just depends on what's happened in the meantime, how many people have bought tickets exactly. in that time frame. So when's the best time to buy the flights? Who knows? Mm. I don't know. And I really don't have the time to go and spend... Every day researching it over many months and then go, Oh, the best time was three months ago. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Damn, I should have got it then. Yeah, yeah. and there was some forehead slapping going on around in my family
1: then. Look, yeah. 2020 hindsight is wonderful, yeah, isn't it? Isn't it? But, but did you know then? Of course not. But Google does. So, what Google Flights is doing at the moment is they're analyzing the data. And again, this is the power of AI analyzing the data on a constant basis just to see what prices flights are. So then when you come along and say, I'd like to fly to Timbuktu, and when's the best time for me to buy a flight? Well, Google Flight says, well, actually, that destination, based on all the research I've done over the last three years worth of flights, buy it 32 days and five hours before the (laughs) flight, and that'll be your cheapest time. And it's just it makes so much sense. I'm sure the airlines hate it. Because it almost sounds like you're gaming the system, mm. but their algorithm is probably gaming the system in the other way. So let's let's have a bit of a gamification back well, in the other direction. congratulations,
0: Qantas, on your, how many uh, billion dollars of profits um, recently. I don't want to attack anyone in particular, <laughs> but um, goodness me. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: this is a way, hopefully, for people to get those flights back to a cheaper price. And I, I find it fascinating, and I understand why, but I find it fascinating that you can be sitting beside someone on a plane, and you're both paid dramatically different prices in fact i love it every now and again you'll get the free upgrade to business class when you're going on an overseas flight and i love just sitting there in the line beside people who have paid the full price for business and go i only paid a thousand dollars for this ticket what did you pay i paid six thousand dollars for that and you start laughing and chuckling away (laughs) (laughs) and then i talk to you again but again it seems unfair in some ways but again i I understand the basics of the economics of filling that plane up with enough variety of fares. So at the moment, it's only for US flights. So flights departing from the US. But let's face it, it'll obviously roll out across the world. That AI tool doesn't need a bunch of people thrown at it. It needs just a bunch of direction to say, go and analyse this. And the other part is it probably needs numbers. So it's going to be more valuable or it's going to be more consistent in the data it puts out when they've got lots of flights so if you've got somewhere that flies once a week between two locations it's probably not going to be great for getting you the best prices of flights Mm. but if you've got somewhere that's flying regularly many flights a day then i think you're gonna get some pretty good flight prices out of it from all that data and all that research
0: we'll keep your ear to the ground about that folks and on that note it is time to stow our tray tables and put our seats in the upright position because this flight is coming into land Move quickly, folks. The stewardesses are getting stroppy. Thanks for another awesome tech talk there, Matt.
1: And I just hope the planes aren't using 3G to get them to their location. Otherwise, oh, you might be in trouble. Fingers
0: crossed about that. That's right. I've just got to say that the search for the Loch Ness Monster is evidence that people will believe in anything. I need all. I need to get all those people with their te- tech here out to get the boogeyman from out of my bed. Um, that's all we've got for you now, folks. Thanks for tuning in once again to Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. I'm your host, James Eddy, reminding you that if you're in the hunt for bunyips and other inland waterway monsters, or if you have troubles with gremlins, goblins, or sasquatches, then it's best to keep that rubbish to yourself or you'll have no friends at Christmas. If not, then why don't you tune in next week for our next sparkling episode? See you then.